good to have you all this morning. We've been doing our series on three-dimensional living, and today we're going to look at the triumphal entry. And in talking about three-dimensional living, remember that this is really we're talking about balanced relationships. So Jesus modeled relationships in three directions, up with the Father, in with his disciples, and out uh, which speaks of his relationship to the world. And so we, as followers or disciples of Jesus, should have these relationships in balance. Picture here is really not of just three separate relationships in themselves, but, but this is really how our life in Christ, our one life in Christ, this is how we should live. We should live in these relationships. We're never not in relationship with the Father. We're never not in relationship with one another, and we are never not relating to the world around us. We are always in Christ in relation with the Father. We are always in Christ in relation with one another, and we are always in Christ in this world, though we're not of this world, and so we are, very, by the very fact that we're in this world, we are relating to the world around us. And so we need to learn how to Hold those relationships in proper tension and proper balance and, and live those out, walk those out in a biblical way, or we could just say it like this, as Christ did. Because that's, that is our destiny. Romans 8.29 says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. So our destiny in Christ is to be conformed to the Son to the glory of the Father. Amen? So our relationship with the Father is in faith. You guys understand this. We're not in relationship with the Father because we've worked our way to that place or because, you know, we finally attained some level of goodness and now the Father says, well, you've kind of reached this point, so now I'll, I'll agree to have a relationship with you and we'll see how it goes. No, our relationship with the Father is in faith, specifically faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus says to his disciples, this is recorded in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but through me. That was in response to a question where, where the, his disciples said, Lord, we don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way. So the only way that we can have a relationship with the Father is in the Son. Now, I wish I had a, a whiteboard or something where I could draw you a picture. But the reality is, if you, can, if you can picture this in your mind, we are in the sun. So if you draw a circle, and that circle represents Jesus, and you draw another circle inside that circle, that's you. You are in the sun. And the sun is in the the Father. We can draw a bigger circle, which is the Father, and the Son is inside that. Well, where are we? We're in the Son. So how did we come to be in the Father? Because we are in the Son. So we understand this, that the Father does not have a relationship with us apart from the Son. God the Father does not know you apart from Jesus Christ. Because the only way we can come to Him is in Christ. Christ is as Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, 
Christ is now the one new man. So we come to the Father in this one new man who is Christ. And so we come by faith in the Son of God. So faith is not based on what is seen. Faith is based on who he is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You see that? Faith is the substance. It's not a shadow. It's a substance. So, you guys see my shadow? See my, look, I'm looking at my shadow right there. My shadow has no substance. The shadow. Here is the substance. The light only casts the shadow, but there's a shadow because there is substance. This is why Paul writes in, in his letter to the Colossians, and he says, hey, don't let anyone judge, me, judge you on, on what you eat or what you drink or Sabbaths or new moons. Those things are shadows, but Christ is the substance. So everything under the law, everything in the Old Testament was given, it was a shadow of what was coming. But the substance is Christ. And so faith is now the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So our relationship with the Father is based in faith. It's not based on what is seen. It's based in who He is. We're going down to Hebrews 11 and look at verse 6. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. I always found that interesting. It just stops right there. He who comes to God must believe that he is in default. Is what? I mean, you can fill in the blank. You can fill in the rest. He is. It's kind of like when Moses says, hey, who do I tell them has sent me? And he said, tell them You are what? Him. He is. He is God. He is the eternal, all-encompassing. He is the God that fills all in all. Yes. And so we must come to him in faith, and faith is, is believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it's not ultimately by external means that we know Christ. Remember the story Jesus tells, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus was a beggar that laid at the gate of this rich man. The rich man would never do anything to help Lazarus, the beggar, and one day they both die. Lazarus, the beggar, ends up in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is in fire in the gulf across from Abraham's bosom, this fiery gulf, and there's the rich man, and he says, oh, if I could just have a drop of water on my tongue, it's so hot, and He's talking, he says, he says, let me go back and, and, and would somebody go warn my brothers? If I could just go back and warn my brothers to let them know. In the words of Jesus, Jesus says, even though one would come back from the dead, they won't believe. They have Moses, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, even if one would come back from the dead, they would not believe. That was a prophetic statement because Jesus knew he was going to come back from dead and even though he came back from the dead there were those who were not going to believe that he is so faith ultimately is not based on what we can see it's not 
an external means that causes us to know Christ. It's by the Spirit. It's an inward knowing that comes by the power and the revelation of the Spirit. So I can read the Bible to you guys. Listen, Scripture has power. Gospel is powerful. But it's not just the fact that I'm imparting knowledge or teaching you knowledge. Knowledge isn't going to save you. It's, it's the gospel. It's the word of God. It's the spirit of God that causes that word, that gospel, to come alive. It empowers that gospel to change your heart. The reason Jesus said it wouldn't matter if someone came back from the dead is because they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the word of God. He said they've got the word, and the word has not changed them. Gospel is the power of God. So experience can confirm what is true, but it's not the measure of what is true. Hearing me? Experience can confirm what is true, but it's not the measure of what is true. Jesus could have sent someone back from the dead. In fact, he did come back from the dead. But in the parable of Lazarus, he said, it won't matter. He said, even if they experience someone coming back from the dead, that's not going to cause them to believe the truth. Because they've had the truth and they've rejected the truth. So a lot of times, we pin our hope on experience. We say, man, if they could just see this, or if they could just experience that, or if they could witness this, then they would believe. We have no scriptural evidence for that. Now, it can. It can confirm what is true. But if we pin all of our hopes on that, there's a danger. So, for instance, and we can all relate to this, because we, we all know we have people in our own families, we have friends, we have people that we know Neighbors, for instance, when we experience healing, it confirms the truth that God is our healer. Do you know that God is our healer? He is the God who heals. God is a healer. And when we experience or we see someone that experiences healing, and they're physically healed, it confirms a truth that God is our healer. But we also all know people who have prayed and believed for healing and have not been healed. Does that experience mean that God is not a healer? So we need to be careful because experience can confirm what is true, but it's not the measure of what is true. So when we experience healing, we we can say it confirms that God is our healer, but when we're not healed physically... That experience does not negate the fact or the truth that God is our healer. Whether we're healed or not physically, God is our healer. If we're healed on this earth, praise God. If I'm not, I know one day when I get to heaven, there is no sickness, there is no disease, There's no suffering, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no limitation. You know why? Because Jesus is our healer. He's already paid for our healing. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. And if our faith is contingent on the when, 
that means that we're putting our trust in externals instead of the unseen. So both experiences, whether we're healed or whether we're not healed, confirm a truth, and this truth is that God is sovereign over all. The fact that our faith in him must not be based only on experience, but our faith must be based on who he is. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he is. We can stop right there. Not believe that he is because he does this or because he doesn't do this, but just believe that he is. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, in the preaching of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Right now, I am preaching the gospel to you from faith. And my hope and my prayer is that the preaching of the gospel from faith is going to faith. That you, by faith, will hear and receive and be changed by the power of the gospel. If I didn't have faith in the gospel, I wouldn't stand up here and preach the gospel. If I didn't have faith in the gospel, I would not be a pastor. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be doing something else. So my faith in the gospel, the faith that comes in the preaching of the gospel is not contingent. It's not conditional upon what I see happening. I mean, if, if all of you were just in a moment to break down and start weeping and flood these altars, we'd say, oh, man, the, the gospel is powerful. Yes, it is. But, but if that doesn't happen, you know what? The gospel is still powerful. And the gospel is still effective. Remember we said last week, Moses, I mean, Noah preached for 100 years. How many people went on the ark with him? Eight people. But for a hundred years, he preached the gospel to a wicked world. You know, the gospel did its work. It did its work. When the judgment came upon that wicked world, the gospel had done its job. It justified the judgment of God. And that same gospel that justified the judgment that God brought, it was faith in God that justified those eight being saved on that ark. They weren't saved because they were good people and had it all together. They were saved because they put their faith, their trust in one greater than themselves. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 3, 11 we read that to you. Paul writes to the Galatians. He quotes the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk who said in Habakkuk 2.4, For we walk by faith, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by his faith is actually how the prophet wrote it. In Galatians 3.11, Paul writes, But no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. 
Now let's turn over to the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter. So our relationship with the Father is based in faith. John 12 is the Gospel of John's account of the triumphal entry. Each of the Gospel has an account. Matthew 21 gives us the account in Matthew's Gospel, Mark 11, Mark's Gospel, Luke 19, and John 12. And each of those accounts of the triumphal entry are interesting in and of themselves, and they all give us kind of a different perspective. You can't fully understand everything that happened surrounding that, really, unless you look at all of these Gospels and study the triumphal entry from those different perspectives. But today we're going to look primarily at John's account of this event. So some 2,000 years ago, on this weekend, week before, and actually tomorrow is Passover, they're Jewish. So we celebrate Easter next Sunday, but Jesus really was crucified during the Feast of Passover. He was the Passover lamb. He was the lamb of God. Just that in our, in our calendar, we celebrate at the same time every year based on what's happening with the moon. The Jews celebrate it the same day of the month every year, but they use a different calendar. So that's why Easter and Passover don't they're most of the time pretty close, but they're not. And we always celebrate Easter on a Sunday because we know that Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday because we know when the day, when the Feast of First Fruits was, and First Fruits was Sunday. Always first day of the week after Sabbath. So, here in this account, let's look at John chapter 12. Father, we just pray that as we look into this gospel, as we look into this account, God, that you'd open our, our, our hearts, and you'd open our minds, and you'd open our ears. Word, the powerful word, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, God, would go and pierce the very, very dividing God, every obstacle, every maybe struggling with, Father, that those would be the Your word would have free reign to affect the Okay, John chapter 12, let's begin in the, begin in the 12th verse. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, 
as it is written, for Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. You know, that's, I think, really important. Can we just pause there for a moment? I think sometimes we get this romantic notion that these men who, now think about this, these guys walked with Jesus up to three and a half years. Now, we don't really know how constantly they were with Jesus, but I think it's pretty safe to say for three and a half years during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus and his 12 disciples were, were pretty, pretty close. They left, their, they left their lives for the most part, and they followed Jesus. And they traveled all throughout that region, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, for three and a half years, and these disciples watched Jesus. Now, by the time this, where we're reading this right now in John 12, we're one week, we're about a week before the crucifixion. So we're in the last week of the life of Jesus, his earthly life. That means there's been about three and a half years prior to this time that these Disciples have walked with Jesus. And in that time, now we started in verse 12, but had we started up a little farther, we'd see that Jesus came to the house of Lazarus in, in Bethany. And Jesus didn't stay in Jerusalem that last week. He stayed in the house of Lazarus. He, he left Jerusalem, went to Bethany, and stayed in the house of Lazarus. Who was Lazarus? Lazarus was the guy he raised from the dead. So think about this. These, just think about the 12, Okay. The twelve were with Jesus, and they saw him raise the dead. They saw him open blind eyes. They saw him heal the lame. They saw him heal lepers. They saw him cast out demons, and they even did those things. They even cast out demons. And they even healed. I mean, one of the very first things Jesus did, he went to the house of Peter, and, and he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Some of you might wonder why Jesus did that. Maybe Peter wondered why. I don't know. Are supposed to laugh. But these guys lived, walked, ate, slept with Jesus, and they witnessed all of these things. Now we come to the end of the life of Jesus, the week before his crucifixion. And look at this. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. And that they had done those things to him. When this stuff was happening, this is why when Jesus was crucified and they watched him die, they became so hopeless and disillusioned. They didn't get it. You would think after three and a half years of Jesus, being with Jesus, they would have gotten it. They didn't. There's a reason for that. It's a real important reason. I mean, number one, we can go to, if we had time, we could go to Luke's gospel and we could see how Jesus opened their understanding when he began to teach them from the law and the prophets all that was concerning him in the scripture. Or we could go to the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit and we see a very different 
group of disciples coming down from the upper room than, than who they were before the Spirit was poured out. And why did Jesus tell them to go and wait in Jerusalem? He didn't say, before you go into all the world and make disciples, he says, go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. For when you will be endued with power on high so that you will have power to do what? To be witnesses for me. Spirit of God gave them the power to be witnesses. We're in John 12. Go ahead, when you get home today and this week, read John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, and see what Jesus teaches his disciples on the night that they ate their last meal together. What he teaches them about the coming Spirit of God, how he must depart, but he is going to send to them a comforter, a helper, the Spirit of truth. And he will teach you. He will call to your remembrance. He will testify of me. He'll reveal and show you all that is mine that the Father has given. This is, this is the importance of the Spirit of God. God has poured his Spirit into you, Christian. If you're a Christian today, you have the Spirit of God. The question is, do you know that you have it? If you're a Christian today, you have the fullness of His Spirit. The question is, do you know that you have the fullness? God can't divide. He can't give you part of His Spirit. He can only give you all of it or none. I always say this. It's like being pregnant. Either you are or you are not. You're not partly pregnant. You are or you are not. If you have the Spirit of God, you have the fullness of of God dwelling in you. That's not what I say. That's what the Bible says. Colossians. In Him, in Christ, dwells the fullness. Where does Christ dwell now? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The fullness of God dwells in you. The problem is you don't comprehend the fullness. Just like the disciples didn't comprehend who Jesus was. This is why they became disillusioned. It wasn't just them. A lot of people. Let's go on. Verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. I mean, Jesus had become a spectacle. Oh, let's go see. Let's go see that guy who got raised from the dead. Now, come on. We're just like that. How many of you have ever been to a carnival sideshow? I mean, I'll be honest with you, man. When I was a kid, I don't know if they have this anymore, but when I was a kid, every carnival had the freak show. And you pay money to go in and, you know, see the baby with two heads or the snake boy or the monkey boy or, you know, most, almost all of it was just fun. It was just a chance. But what was it that wanted us to, that, that makes us want to see those things. This is what the... Look, Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead. Look, Jesus is here. He's at the house of Lazarus. Let's go see. Because remember, people are coming from all over the world. Jews are coming from all over the world to celebrate the feast. Where had he gotten out? Jesus raised this guy from the dead. Let's go see this guy that was raised from the dead. It had just become a spectacle. And so this is what the Bible is saying here. For this reason, 
a lot of the people came out to meet him. They wanted to see because they heard that he had done this sign. Verse 19, the Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. In other words, look, it's been three and a half years, and he is still here, and it looks like the world is following him. What are we going to do, guys? You have accomplished nothing. You haven't gotten rid of him. You haven't killed him yet. You haven't discredited him yet. As a matter of fact, his credibility seems to be growing day by day. Look, you have accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip and, and, and Andrew and they said, hey, can you introduce us to Jesus? And Philip, verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, hey, these, these Greeks who had become Jews have come to worship, and they want to meet you. Here's Jesus' response. He kind of basically ignores them. Because it wasn't that time yet. But he says, but Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now think about this. You think about what's happening. Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem. There are throngs of people, multitudes. These palm branches, they, they were lining the road. They had thrown their clothes down. They'd thrown palm branches down so that the hoofs of that little donkey Jesus was riding wouldn't even touch the dirt. And they're all shouting, Hosanna! Save us to the uttermost. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This multitude is declaring his kingship. They're lining the road. Jesus is humbly riding in on this donkey. People are coming. He raised the dead. We want to see him. The Greeks have come. If he's the Messiah, I know we're not Jewish, but we've we've become, we've circumcised we adopted this is our messiah too can we meet him is there any way for us to meet him you guys are his disciples can you get us an inside backstage pass to see this jesus and jesus when his response is this the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified what do you think they're thinking when jesus said the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified I mean, here, here's the crowd from all over the world. Thousands of people screaming, crying, the king of Israel. And Jesus says to his disciples, the hour has come. Son of man to be glorified. What do you think they are thinking? You think they're thinking the cross? You think they're thinking the hour that he is going to be glorified is the hour that he's going to be killed? They're thinking, this is it, guys. He is the Messiah. He's going to go into Jerusalem, and he is going to bring our deliverance. He's going to conquer the Romans. This is when the kingdom is going to be restored. They were all right about that. They just didn't understand how he was going to do it. So he says in verse, verse 23, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You understand they still didn't get it. They're not catching what Jesus is saying. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life 
in this world will keep it for eternal life. They didn't catch that either. It's just going right over their head. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where was Jesus going? Cross. If anyone serves me, how many of you serve Jesus? How many of you are willing to follow Jesus? You know, where Jesus is leading us today is not any different than where he led his disciples then. If you want to find life, you've got to be willing to lose your life. If you want to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, you have to be willing to take up your cross and follow him today. And you see the paradox here. He's talking about losing something in order to gain something. He's talking about laying down something in order to Receive something. That doesn't make sense in our worldly way of thinking. Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came. Father, glorify your name. Because then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by heard it and said, Hey, did you hear it thunder? And others said, Oh, no, I think an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, verse 31, this is important. Now, judgment. Now, the ruler of this world will be. Now, understand what the word now means. Doesn't mean we're still waiting for that to happen. It means it's it's already happened. If if not, then Jesus is a liar. I don't think Jesus is a liar. And if I if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, do you understand? When they ask that question, they're not thinking cross. They're thinking, when he says the Son of Man must be lifted up, they're thinking something like Elijah getting translated to heaven. You know, the chariot's going to come, and he's going to get it on, and he's going to fly off to heaven. He goes, hey, wait a minute. The law says that when the Messiah comes, he's going to remain forever. What are you talking about? You're going to be lifted up. You came why are you leaving? If you're the Messiah, you're going you're gonna to stay here. They, they weren't thinking cross. They're still thinking all this gloriousness of conquering and flaming chariots and, 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 and Jesus is going to do it right now and he's going to do it physically and naturally and he's going to really, with a sword, defeat his enemies. But Jesus, the scripture tells us, was talking about how he was going to die. And they're not thinking how he's going to die. They're wondering why, if you are the Messiah, why are you going to get translated back to heaven? Aren't you staying with us? Because that's what Scripture says. So what does this tell us? This tells us that these guys, listening to Jesus, believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was going to do something right then and there. But it it wasn't their expectation. 
The other thing we see is this, is that Jesus trusted his father. We see it in the garden when he prays, I will, but thy will be done. We see it here. He says to the father, Father, glorify your name. Jesus understood how the father's name was going to be glorified. When Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces fruit. Jesus understood how the Father was glorified. Just a few chapters over, when you get to John 15, Jesus teaches his disciples the parable of the vine and the branches. He, he helps them understand, this is how the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. But they don't really get it yet. They will. So from a natural point of view, it seemed as if the promised king was conquered instead of the one conquering. Let's fast forward a week and we go to the crucifixion. There is the same Jesus who rode in on a donkey, the same Jesus who was held the king. Now just hours before he's hanging on that cross, there's, there's another crowd I think it's safe to say that many of the same people were in that second crowd. The cry wasn't, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, O King of Israel. The cry was, crucify him. Why was that? Why was the cry to crucify him? Turn over real quick to Mark's gospel. and Let's look at one verse in Mark's account triumphal entry. Now, I want, you to keep, I want you to keep in mind this picture of this thousands of people crying out, King of Israel, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they follow Jesus right on into Jerusalem. In the first place Jesus goes as he rides into Jerusalem, you know where he goes? He goes to the temple. Now, we, we all remember, we all know that in, in two of the accounts, Jesus says Jesus goes in there, really in all the accounts, he goes in there and he takes a, a whip and he drives out the money changers. But that's not the first thing Jesus did. Mark's gospel tells us, it shows us what, what happened in Mark eleven eleven. It says, and when Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple... So when he looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus rides in with this multitude screaming, King of Israel, throwing their clothes and their palm branches. They go in, they're thinking he is going to, I mean the Messiah is here, he's going to do it right now. This is it. This is the climax. This is the beginning of the end for the Roman oppression. This is the beginning of the kingdom being restored to Israel. And what does Jesus do? He goes right into the temple. He looks around. And after he looks around, he just very unassumingly, very normally, just like somebody else, just like anyone else in the crowd, he just walks out of the temple and goes back to Lazarus. Now, if you had been in that crowd screaming, King of Israel, and you see your Messiah go into the temple, your expectation is that he's going to do something. But you know what? 
no fiery speeches, no fire from heaven, no signs and wonders. He just goes and he looks around and he leaves. You want to talk about anticlimactic? If you, were, if you were watching this in a movie and you've just had this build up to this moment, this crescendo, this climax where now you've got the whole nation screaming king of Israel and he's marching into Jerusalem. I mean, and the Romans are getting nervous because they're thinking what in the world's fixing to happen here. We've got 125,000 plus people in this city and they're all excited and emotional. And Jesus goes into the temple and you're waiting for the great climax, and it's just like a balloon just being deflated. He just does absolutely. Turns around and leaves. And the people are left. That Was that the guy that just rode in, and we threw our... I threw my... My brand new tunic down and let his donkey walk on it. I thought he was the king of Israel. And he, he just came in here and he didn't do anything. He didn't say boo. He didn't. He, he just looked around and he left. All the momentum just gone. You know what happened? There were a lot of people that day who had their expectations. Absolutely dashed. The disappointment in these people was demonstrated when they called for his death just days later. The same guy they were calling the king, now they're crying, crucify him. When he finally did, the next morning, go into the temple, you know what? He didn't drive the Romans out. You know who he drove out? He drove the Jews out. He drove the money changers out. He drove the religious leaders out. He made a cord of whips and, and drove the wrong people out. He, why is he driving our own people out? Why isn't he attacking the Romans? He's attacking us. More So when the day comes, they say, hey, this guy, has he done anything Messiah-like? He might have known the scriptures. Maybe he rode in on a donkey because he knew that's what the scripture said. But seen anything that would say he's really the Messiah? He's not made, lifted one finger to overthrow our enemy. Because those people had put their hope and their faith and their expectations in the external. They couldn't see what was clearly there to be seen. I want to ask you this question. Do you trust God only when he meets your expectations? You know, it's easy to trust. It's easy to stand on the sideline and cheer, Go, King of Israel! When he's coming in and, and everybody else is cheering and you think this is it, and you've got an expectation, what happens when your expectation? You trust him because he is. Stop right there. Not because he is going to do something, not because he is, no, because he is. 
you know that what they cried? When they cried, King of Israel, they told the truth. When the recorded in Luke's gospel, when the Pharisees said, Hey, Jesus, do you hear what your disciples are saying? You hear what these people are saying? They're calling you the King of Israel. You better tell them to be quiet. He says, You know what? If they don't cry out, they're very wrong. We trust God because He is, even when our expectations are bad. Faith, listen to me, faith trusts. Two lessons we see from the triumphal first is this that Jesus no one made Jesus go into that city it wasn't just a cosmic alignment of circumstances that he wasn't a victim of circumstances the Lord Jesus Christ is not a victim of circumstances Jesus is Lord in spite of what the people believe in spite of the circumstances regardless of what did or did not happen Jesus is never the victim of circumstances because he is always the commander. Do you know him as the commander of destiny? Jesus is the commander of destiny. He is not. You can be a victim of circumstances if you choose to be, but as a child of God, I would encourage you to rest secure in him is the commander. Destiny, that means he's the commander. You are. You know what the destiny of my hand is? Same as the destiny of my foot and my knee and my elbow, my ear, my nose. Why? Because they're all connected. My hand doesn't have a separate destiny from my nose, my elbow. You don't have a separate destiny from Jesus. That's why Paul writes, you are destined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Your destiny is secure in Jesus Christ. Know Him as the commander of your destiny. Don't see yourself as a victim of circumstance. See yourself safe and secure, joined in union to the commander of your destiny. Jesus is Lord. The second is this, that though Jesus does not always meet our expectations, his grace always, always, always exceeds. You hear me, church? Jesus does not always meet our expectation, but his grace always exceeds our Whether those people realized it or not, Jesus marched into Jerusalem. Days later, he was lifted up on a cross. He gave up his spirit. He died. He was put into a tomb. He was resurrected three days later. But for many people, when they saw him die on that cross, that was it for them. They didn't care about anything else. Their expectations were dashed. And they went away not understanding that his grace had exceedingly met their need. They didn't need to be delivered from a physical Roman army. They didn't need a physical kingdom 
They needed a savior because their problem wasn't the oppression of a natural army. Their problem was the oppression of sin and death in their soul and in their dead spirits that separated them from God. What they needed was a savior who would come and bring them back to union and join them and restore them again to the father. And Jesus abundantly, exceedingly did that by grace. He died on 